Hey, it's a FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me, as always, is Steve. How are you doing? I am doing well, John. How are you? How are things on your end? Uh, I am glad I am here in California where we don't have snow. That is also something that I'm very glad to be a part of. Yes, absolutely. Uh, no snow. Overcast, but at least no snow, no cold. Or not crazy cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how you get things done and uh on what you know when you have uh you get snowed out and uh everything. Uh maybe that's why Silicon Valley is done so well. That could be one reason why, yeah. The nice weather, the good Mexican food always helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The burrito delivery. The burrito delivery, yeah. It's uh yeah, yeah. Very pizza and burrito delivery is a key for uh, a thriving startup. It's what fuels the ecosystem. That and the money. That and the money. Yes, yes. I, I think I see where you're going here. Uh, but you know what? The uh, We're not the experts in this area. So these uh, theories might be a little bit flawed. Uh, so to help us out, we're lucky to have the founder and managing director of Comcap LLC, Fermin Caro, with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. So is it a good sign when you're looking to a company to invest in if you see a lot of pizza boxes and uh, burrito wrappers lying around? I guess that depends how how long they've been sitting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could be a disturbing <laughs> sign. Yeah, that's true. What are you seeing these days in the fintech world? What are, what are the trends uh, that have kind of been surprising or that you've you've noticed lately? Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, we tend to work with emerging technology companies, and it's usually in that Series B or later. Um, and, and we do have, of course, conduits throughout earlier stage. Uh, I think that the 23 period, we saw you know, a, a much more muted investor and M&A environment. A lot of that was fueled by uncertainty around rates and just general um, you know, prioritization of sustainable business models. Uh, although, you know, the... You know, there were some shoots of green towards the end of the year. Uh, we see some stability coming into the public markets. You know, a lot of the uh, fintech companies have uh, rebounded and have more stability in their multiples. Uh, I think as we start to see attractive exits and IPOs, and we're going to see a little bit more funding accelerate. Um, so what's getting funded? I think we, we continue to see folks with longer time horizons. Um, so the seed and earlier stage are are seeing maybe a little bit um, less of a of a downbeat sort of um, environment in terms of volume. Um, and certainly we did see some contraction in valuations in the later stage, uh, a little less activity there. What's hot, you know, I think it's hard to, you know, start any segment and not say that Gen AI is drawing attention. And for banks and fintech, that's been a productivity play. Um, is it there like are many other segments the, uh, that we're seeing, and I'm happy like to go the into 2000, that. 2001 um, boom, where if you just put .com, if you just say you're Gen AI, your likelihood to get funding has just gone up by 50% or something. Should we call it the Gen AI newscast? <laughs> you could. You and I both lived it. So, um, you know, if you had a dot com and a really cool lunch party, you you uh, you were making waves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I did appreciate all the free food and drinks at the lunch parties. Yeah. So so I think that, yes, uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm um, and there's a lot of experimentation, but there are some um, low hanging fruit, if you will, areas where, you know, the applications can 
um, and are being tested uh, productivity as it relates to, you know, basic repetitive tasks. Uh, we've seen the use of AI before in some of the um, underwriting processing for loan qualification, servicing, customer support, and fraud. I think that's only going to become more sophisticated, uh, but there are real costs in terms of that infrastructure uh, the compliance and the regulations that uh, these tools could make a big impact on and drive efficiency. So, yeah, we've seen that uh, algorithms getting used for uh, better credit reporting. Um, I, I don't know where the line is, where it goes from uh, algorithms to uh, it being called AI uh, formally, mm -hmm. or, or if that's just a marketing term for for complex algorithms. Uh, but yeah, uh, applying it to uh, sensitive areas where it can really help you and avoid big regulatory uh, uh, problem. You know, probably uh, Robinhood should have done that from the very beginning. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, the compliance and the reporting, I think there's a lot that can be done there. Uh, fraud detection has been using different AI tools to help manage risk. I think that, again, will be more sophisticated over time. Yeah, one of the areas that I think goes beyond that, um, the basic, you know, customer support is the use of AI in personalization. Uh, we've seen implementations of these in other verticals where, you know, it could be, you know, more experimental, like in retail um, and allowing folks to navigate perhaps complex product configurations. And I think if we welcome, you know, a reduction in complexity in terms of financial services and a uh, a more, you know, personalized and less one-size-fits-all type of approach for some of the solutions as they become unbundled and repackaged by both fintechs and banks. So uh, I think that there's a lot of promise for being able to present new options that aren't readily available to certain demographics and the opportunity to help them understand those products and leverage those solutions to improve their uh, you know, the cash management, financial well-being. And this is both for SMBs, you know, larger enterprises, as well as consumers. Yeah, so you're looking for uh, these good products uh, that have a good fit, that, that solve for uh, a real pain point. Uh, what what are you looking for in terms of like the founder or the managing team? Are there red flags or green flags that you really like to see or don't want to see? The efficiency of the business and the way they deploy capital for growth. Um, if we contrast a couple of years ago, um, a business that had hyper growth was seeing, you know, even low to mid single digit you know, LTV to CAC. And so long as that, um, so long as they had capital available to continue to onboard customers, you know, I think that that was, you know, seen favorable. Uh, we started to see more uh, attention to the net dollar retained, uh, different ratios in terms of, you know, their ability to monetize their customers and retain them over time and grow them. Um, I think today we're looking at you know, all of these are just table stakes, your ability to onboard clients efficiently, uh, monetize them well, service them well, uh, retain them. Um, and probably one of the red flags is 
that anything that's still in that low single digit LTV to CAC could be a warning sign. Higher churn. Oh, explain the uh, LTV to CAC, by the way. Right. So for businesses, many times their cost of customer acquisition is the denominator, um, and they will divide that into the lifetime value of a customer. That lifetime value can be calculated primarily as the you know sort of the gross profitability of that business over the duration of time that they uh, that you so, retain them. So how much they're paying for their future cash flow? Correct. The other part of it is that that is important, especially today, is you know the efficiency of the business, the capital efficiency of the business. So not just on the sales and marketing spend, but in the overall investment into product technology. Is this a sustainable business? Um, are they a near profitability or uh, demonstrating that they can be profitable? Uh, we're seeing more growth investors pay attention to uh, this aspect, and you'll see it manifest in the way of, you know, a rule of 40, where folks are looking at the overall growth rate as a percentage and top line, as well as the uh, overall profitability or operating profits of a business or cash flows of a business, summing those together and wanting to see something uh, that is 40% or more. Sometimes we see more like 50% um, as being a requisite for moving forward with an investment decision. Okay. So the, the key financials, um, uh, their, their prospects, uh, anything about the, uh, uh, the, the team, are, are there times where you're like, how did these guys accomplish these numbers <laughs> or, or the other way around? These guys are so good. How are they doing so poorly? Or maybe this isn't a good market. Um, yeah, I, I think we've seen incredible success with product led organizations. Um, and sometimes, you know, there is that, you know, they got lucky, they hit a core need, and were able to gain access because of a lack of competition. That's what I say about uh, everyone that's doing better than me. Yeah, they're just lucky. <laughs> well, 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 yeah, I mean, look, the, sometimes you get lucky. So they um, have been able to learn from those early deployments and productize those and and take market feedback and and that you know those that work well usually have some you know time some kind of first to market advantage some sort of time element advantage um, where we've seen things be challenging is you know strong conviction behind a product is is just a, a great attribute in many cases except when it presents a blinders to market feedback. And in those cases, I think that uh, businesses where there's, you know, strong conviction, but not le not really learning from where to take the business next. Yeah, the evidence uh, isn't supporting the. I I love a good pivot story, uh, mm -hmm. you know, where where they're adjusting, they're really opening up to what the market's telling them, and then adjusting. Sometimes, and I'm sure you've seen this, some like side project or a small part of the prod product becomes the the home run. Right. And yeah. I'm sure you have stories about that as well. So what what are we seeing here? Uh, maybe a little bit more humility around some of the far owners in the and, and product specific where they are open to uh, 
new management teams coming in, new leadership in some cases and different functions, a retooling of the go-to-market, even at the most senior level in terms of uh, CEO uh, levels that could come in, placed by the board, sometimes recruited by the founder to take the business to that next stage. You know, there's a sort of um, ceiling that we find with companies hitting that close to 20 million in top line, great growth, have, you know, really interesting product, and they're kind of hovering around there and, and things are decelerating. Um, it, it's Sometimes it is, you know, a different skill set that can then 5X that scale of business uh, and take it to, you know, uh, uh, you know, the next level. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a little more openness to that, a little bit more shuffling of, you know, who's in charge and how they're going to market. And, you know, they've got many times insider rounds that are helping to support this pivot, as you said, or this re um, reincarnation of the business. And they've got maybe a year's worth of runway to, to prove it out, which is uh, an interesting segue here because so many businesses now uh, in fintech have, you know, less than a year left of cash, right? I think we've seen reports of 50% of fintechs will run out of cash by the end of the year. So that's actually pretty, pretty dire. Yeah. In terms of the sub industries and then the sub segments of, of fintech, think thinking here of real time payments and, Mm-hmm. Um, and financial APIs like 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 Plaid and all that. Um, is there sort of is there an, a sub industry within fintech that you think has a lot of potential for twenty twenty four? Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's a number of trends I think that are really encouraging. So uh, the ability to transact and uh, and reconcile payment um, in real time, whether that be account to account or card based uh, through different um, you know, sort of instant payment protocols. That's something that we are uh, closely watching. I think that it presents some challenges to card rails, but settlement is coming in faster uh, and less expensive. And many companies are presenting some of these solutions uh, with either immediate liquidity for merchant sellers um, or consumers even for a premium. So there's new ways that, that businesses are able to to monetize based off of you know the um, latency of of payment and access to those funds um the the other part that i think is interesting here is with some of these methods of of payment the chargeback issues uh become you know irrelevant so some of the account to account payments you know uh, once the payment's gone, it's it's done, right? And uh, there's, you know, different, you know, sort of avenues that one has to pursue in order to, you know, um, dispute some of these things, but uh, very different than, you know, card-based payments. So uh, some solutions there, we do see, you know, more and more um, adoption of digital payments going to, mid or larger enterprise companies. And when you think about the volumes of payments to vendors and um, and and the ability to do that in a much less manual and automated way, you're gonna see, um, you know, just incredible efficiencies and access to cash flows in ways that um, wasn't possible before. 
Yeah, no, I, the merchant fees are a killer for a lot of places. I mean, you're losing 3% uh, on for credit card fees. Uh, I, I'd love to see real-time payments. I know Steve is a big uh, fan of that as well. But just when it's I supposed receive, to be coming. when I receive money, I want it real time. When I send it, I want to mail a check. <laughs> so you as a funder, pretty much, um, you uh, you mentioned that you're looking at companies in the B B plus stage as well. Um, do you have a focus? Because I'm I'm always interested in in, in seeing whether um, how this break, breaks out as well. Um, do you have a focus in terms of consumer-facing fintech or enterprise fintech? And what do you see the most value there as well? Because I think that we've seen how, at least from my experience mm -hmm. as, an, as a non-investor, um, several sure. of the consumer-facing consumer fintechs seem to have sort of faltered a, a bit, whereas the enterprise fintech market mm -hmm. still remains, in my eyes, fairly strong. So do how do you yeah. differentiate between those two and what sort of your investment strategy if you see a chance to invest in a company that's sort of within your, your wheelhouse? Uh, sure, absolutely. And, and just, you know, for clarifications, so we are a boutique investment bank and we act as advisors. Mm -hmm. uh, we do buy-side advisory for some corporates uh, and in some cases private equity to help surface, uh, you know, and and leverage our domain expertise on their behalf. Uh, yeah, but we're mostly a sell-side advisory shop. And for the most part, that would be, um, we've worked within the digital um, kind of vertical SaaS and payments world. A lot of that has been B2B. We do have uh, some areas where, especially around payment, where the consumer fintech has been um, an area of, of focus for us. So when we look at, you know, consumer versus B2B, what I can say is um, we've seen many analogs around the ability to acquire uh, consumers in a cost-efficient way and we will liken it, we've seen it in direct-to-consumer brands, fashion, apparel, beauty. We've seen it in financial services, insurance, as well as um, even healthcare-related items. So what ends up happening is, you know, folks start to uh, generate a, a lot of growth from a small base, um, and they're able to acquire customers at a relatively low cost as they penetrate that demographic, their conversion rates start to decrease and they begin to expand their marketing spend to broader audiences and the cost of acquisition skyrockets for them. And they start to kind of flatline. Uh, that's where the differentiation and the market segmentation and the ability to have even some network effects for customer acquisition become really powerful. And of course, the retention side of it and the ability to monetize beyond the initial product become even more uh, necessary. So what we found is on the consumer front, um, these are challenges that a lot of groups have faced and um, the competition within the consumer facing fintechs is typically pretty high. You know, it's um, relatively fragmented. And so that drives some of that um, you know, sort of penetration and cost dynamics. Um, so, so you know, we see that on the B2B side, uh, we find that point solutions and those that begin to add adjacencies um, are, are becoming, you know, are getting to 
substantial scale and you've seen folks address the SMB market really well, uh, folks like Bill.com and, and other kind of procure to pay um, solutions have grown and are valued very richly. Um, however, you know, there's, there's only a few of those players that can really take a dominant position. And so what many of the B2B players are seeking to do now is broaden their offerings, you know, get more share of wallet, and that's going to drive consolidation at an opportune time, right? I think we we know that there's some cash constraints. We know that there's some really valuable businesses, technology, um, and business models that can fold into much larger distribution capabilities. Um, and that, that could be a, a really interesting benefit for those that have cash to to spend on potential M&A. Interesting. So you mentioned that you're basically in the advisory space as well. And I'm wondering, since you've, um, before we, be, we began recording, you mentioned that you actually moved to the East Coast now. And mm -hmm. do you see a difference in how this sort of stuff is, is approached um, East versus, versus West Coast and sort of the, you know, the Bay Area ecosystem versus what you're seeing up in New England? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think part of it is is a traditional bend towards, uh, look, you know, I think that the Northeast has incredible founders and entrepreneurs, institutions with research and and real, um, you know, tangible, um, life-saving, you know, sort of technology. So life sciences has been really strong here. You know, there's a number of, of verticals that are fairly diverse um, and traditionally have had uh, just a an exceptional group, but a finite group of venture capitalists. Um, today, that's a broader set. Probably you'd see more of the later stage growth um, and private equity community uh, here in the Northeast. And that's, you know, something that's existed for decades, right? Um, and the more seed stage and early investor set that came out of research, Stanford and other um, early VC shops, you know, tended to, you know, aggregate within certain pockets like Silicon Valley. Um, today we see founders being much more mobile and teams being formed, you know, in, in many parts of the country, St. Louis, Miami, you know, North Carolina, you know, in Virginia, as well as, you know, Kansas city down, you know, of course, Texas have always had a bit of an ecosystem. So a little bit you know, broader set of talent and the remote work environment has helped to enable that as well. Are you also seeing any um, uh, any interest in uh, fintechs being developed outside of uh, of the U.S.? I know that, for example, a, yeah. lot, a lot of companies in payments and sort of in access to credit were built and developed and, and marketed and made for uh, for a non-U.S. market. And sort of what are you seeing in that space now? It's in, in the past 18 months Absolutely. Our practice has been global by nature. There's about 30 of us, and we cover North, the Americas broadly, as well as EMEA, APAC, and LATAM. So when we think about some of the uh, countries and geographies that uh, have really kind of leapfrogged in terms of payment uh, infrastructure because they've had to adapt to a um, mobile-first okay. consumer base, um, they don't have necessarily the same legacy infrastructure uh, that's been developed and, and adopted uh, that, that we enjoy here. Uh, we've seen 
you know, of course, India with the UPI, we've seen the digital wallet phenomenon that emerged out of China and Southeast Asia. Um, and, and we're seeing a lot of those, um, you know, sort of technologies being replicated or go-to-markets being replicated in, in LATAM. So when we look at, at these markets, we're seeing, you know, real-time payments have, you know, with PIX, UPI, and, and other protocols being, you know, they have huge populations um, that are connected via mobile, uh, most of them unbanked or underbanked, and are now being, um, you know, serviced by kind of very direct and, and pointed solutions. And over time, those will will broaden, you know, I think. Uh, so we're learning from some of those models, right, in mm -hmm. terms of Buy now, pay later existed in Brazil and other markets, you know, decades ago. Um, but we're seeing that being adopted in other places. We're seeing digital wallets being a form of payment that are more widely um, you know, accepted, even in North America and Europe, as we start to see diversity of of payment forms. You know, WeChat Pay, Alipay, even Venmo at the point of sale. You know, I think there's some really interesting phenomenons there in terms of cost, complexity, and and uh, meeting the consumer where they are. Got it, got it. It seems like a lot of those markets also are the ones that would be ripe for things like blockchain-based currency adoption as well. And I know that we saw, at least in El Salvador, they, they officially um, adopted that as a as a yeah. as an official method of payment. But what is your take on where, sort of where the crypto space has been, and what, what do you think it will be, you know, say this year? Because I know that um, Bitcoin, for uh, for example, is up. I, I think at, mm -hmm. I think I think it's close to fifty thousand now. But it seems like investment in this space, especially in regards to the NFT space and even cri cryptocurrency um, overall, seems to have seems to be down significantly as well. So, is is this a, a, a dead space? Is it just a matter of finding the right market or the right geography for this? Or sort of a, how how do you think about investing within this space? Yep, there's been significant exuberance around this space. Broadly defined, a lot of the Web three infrastructure, blockchain digital currencies, digital assets. Mm -hmm. uh, now, now, what I would say is that uh, environments where there is uh, maybe uncertainty around domestic or, or, or local currency, hyperinflation, um, you know, I, I think that digital currencies have, play a very strong role. You, know, you can look at Argentina and you know, you, you'd be surprised at how many folks are, you know, trading their Bitcoin for satchels of, you know, pesos just when yeah. they need it. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen even in, even in established markets, actually, we've seen some companies that have done very, very well uh, for folks that want to hold Bitcoin and only spend it when they need to. And they're doing it through stored value and different retail kind of programs in a, in a digital manner that makes it really efficient. Um, We've also worked with and, and know of companies that are enabling some of the central bank digital currencies um, in, in markets around the Caribbean, Africa, um, places where, again, there's you know, a lot of volatility in currency and a desire to have a digital format. So you've seen um, a push, you know, sort of in developing countries and those that have, you know, large cash-based um purchasing power towards digital 
uh, and you know, India kind of eliminating some of their cash going into a, a digital format is a good example of policy-driven advances to be able to have greater visibility around the money flows. Um, and for some markets, you know, the, the cryptocurrency provides a, a standard uh, format for exchange. So um, very interesting market, and we're seeing it, you know, not just in Bitcoin, but we're seeing it in, in different protocols. You know, I think Ripple and XRP are, are expanding many of the use cases for, you know, cross-border and finance, uh, financial transactions. Um, same with no, Stellar Network. On, on that for so many years, uh, am I just being impatient, thinking that uh, this should happen already? Or or is this really just... I mean, I, I've been following um, a lot of the projects, or I used to anyway. Uh, and uh, I thought, yeah, Ripple XRP would get some traction now, but it's been... Uh, was it at least seven, eight, nine years? It's been years. Uh, we we should have buried Western Union five years ago, but it's somehow still around. Yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. That's yeah. uh, that's a great use case with the high cost, slow, uh, manual uh, kind of thing that looks like it's ripe for for being overturned. But uh, is Western Union buying off uh, Ripple, or, or or what's going on? What why is it taking so long? I, I and there's also <laughs> so many projects. I remember I used to follow in the Ethereum. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. for ethereum like a golem for storage and things like this that would all be blockchain based and i love the blockchain solutions not so much cryptocurrencies uh but but wh why do you still think um that this hasn't happened yet it, should, it just takes longer than than i i would expect yeah i, I think that's a great question oftentimes you know there has to be a need and a pain point and a cat that catalyzes us. I think um, in in North America, you know, we have an established network that operates pretty well. You, know, you think about Western Union, MoneyGram. You know, these these groups have been able to and switching that overnight. You know, it isn't going to be easy unless there's a major pain point issue and and so i think they're picking off pockets there's some markets where you know it's going to take longer i would say that us north america is probably one um you know we did see ripple go into moneygram you know back in 2019 and 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 that performed pretty well but i think that that partnership has ended now um they're going into custody um acquiring different platforms and i think that they're they've been smart to leverage you know the xrp the value they created through xrp and use that uh to acquire additional capabilities to build out you know core infrastructure um I, I think it is a bank and enterprise grade offering um that will take time you know to to become a de facto standard but um, there's real tech and some interesting use cases that they're uncovering. Yeah, yeah. The the sooner the better. Yeah. 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 I think the uh, NFT craze was really funny. And I remember going to some of the parties <laughs> where your board ape was your pass to get in and being denied at the door. I, I'm used to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because of the board ape thing. Yeah. yeah.
So the use cases now that we're seeing around NFTs are a little bit more commercial. Um, they are, you know, redemption oriented, stored value oriented, loyalty oriented. Um, I, I like the competition for securitizing, or actually the gap, I guess, for securitizing uh, non-liquid assets. Sounds yeah. interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The way I kind of um, analogize the the blockchain uh, solutions are kind of like Linux. It's kind of behind the scenes. You won't notice it, but it's it's being used everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, um, I, I don't see it used everywhere. <laughs> not not yet, anyway. Yeah, I, I think funding volumes there have certainly come down. Um, they're happening, you know, less frequent, smaller quantums. Um, however, there is this just incredible model of mobilizing developers to create applications under your protocol on the promise of, you know, token value. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's leading to crowdfunding in all kinds of ways that many of these novel technologies are able to, you know, get proof of concepts, get some market validation without ever really having to tap the venture community. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that that makes it very challenging when you're looking at, you know, sort of diligence validation, you know, credibility through, you know, a business's, you know, capital raise and, and what they've been able to build um, because they may not necessarily have been, you know, built to report to a board, right? Many of these are decentralized in terms of the ownership and the decision-making and community-based. And so mm -hmm. um, those are really interesting, you know, uh, models to, to think about scaling in the traditional venture lens. Yeah, interesting. So you, you're looking at some NFT uh, solutions for, uh, or you've invested in or looking at investing in some of these solutions. Marketplaces, um, those that enable brands uh, and and retailers and companies to um, mint, manage, um, redeem those NFTs. So we like the picks and shovels. Yeah, I was that's it was just there. reminding me of that. Yeah, uh, we feel comfortable there. I don't know that you know we're going to be the ones that are going to identify, you know. The next consumer phenomenon. Uh, I sure would like it to be, but well, I'd like to you be do. Yeah. providing the infrastructure for that. You you just mentioned luck does have a part to play. Yeah. You've been in this business for a while now. I've seen a couple of um, hits and misses. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, what's uh, one thing that you wish you knew uh, when you were first starting Comcap? So we were fortunate enough to built CompCap with a sort of a buy-side view. And what that allowed us to do was to um, represent our clients and go very deep into specific sectors, sub-verticals, and understand the various you know, technologies that were there. Um, and I think that many cases um, we, you know, we all have, you know, a uh, an enthusiasm for what could be 
you know, how could a strategic partnership roll out? Um, how quickly could it roll out? Uh, what would be the financial impact of that? What kind of synergies could be realized, you know, through an investment, through an acquisition? Um, and and that's that is uh, a quantitative and and cerebral, um, you know, sort of you know, a discipline that we employ. Um, and I think over time, you know, you you do have to calibrate around what does it take for the human element to effectuate that. Right. What is the resourcing? What is that organizational um, structure that's going to be needed to to realize these things? And uh, and I think being thoughtful upfront around some of those elements and having that advocacy and and you know sort of political capital to see that through, um, just having a better appreciation of that. Because uh, we've seen phenomenal outcomes for some of our clients because that was in place. And we've seen, you know, singles and doubles for other clients where, you know, that was less clear. So, um, you know, still still good outcomes, just trying to understand what helps to contribute to exceptional outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that experience does help for sure. Uh, well, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I uh, appreciate your insights and uh, good luck on hitting the next home run. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. And good to connect with you again. That's Fermin Caro, the founder and managing partner at Comcap LLC. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.